Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews, chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 12. It's a minor change to what's printed in your bulletin. I decided to call this sermon Christian Assurance uh, because this passage is really an essential passage to understand for your own assurance in the Christian life. So we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12, and considering the topic of Christian assurance. Give attention now to God's holy word. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for giving us your word. But even more than that, O Lord, we thank you that what your word is for us is your special presence. And we pray now, O Lord, that as we enter into a time of preaching your word, you would manifest to us your special presence by pouring out the Holy Spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in hearing his voice, we might be built up and behold your glory. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this spring, I planted a garden. Uh, for us, it was the first time that we kept a garden. I'm sure many of you either have a garden or perhaps planted a garden or perhaps wanted to plant a garden, or you've seen gardens at some point in your life. And in our garden, we put various plants, and some did better than others. Our green bell peppers, our least favorite kind of bell pepper, did fantastic. We have green bell peppers coming out of our ears. But another plant that we put in that we really wanted to succeed was not as fruitful. We put a watermelon plant in our garden, and this watermelon plant did not want to produce fruit for whatever reason. I'm a new gardener. I don't really know. And so the, the watermelon plant was there. The vines kept getting larger and larger and longer and longer, but there were no watermelons growing or developing. And so what I ended up having to do this past week was just rip it out and throw it in the compost heap because it was just taking up space. It wasn't producing any fruit. 
Well, just like my garden in my backyard or any other garden that you have seen or had experience with, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a garden of the Lord. Throughout the scriptures, God describes Israel, but also the church, as a planting of the Lord. In fact, the most common phrase that's used is that it's called the vineyard of the Lord. And of course, a vineyard, just like a garden, is planted for one primary purpose, to produce fruit. When the Lord brings people into his garden and plants them in the soil of the good word of God, his expectation is that those who have been planted by the Lord will produce fruit. But just like in my garden, so also in the Lord's garden, not every plant produces fruit. Not everything the Lord has planted in the church produces the fruit he is expecting. Probably the most famous example of this is when Christ in the Gospels is on the eve of the crucifixion and he's walking into Jerusalem to cleanse the temple. He comes to a fig tree. And the fig tree was sitting on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Christ was looking for fruit from the fig tree. And he found none. And immediately after that, Christ cursed the fig tree. It withered up and died. That fig tree was a representation of the nation of Israel. And what Christ was displaying in that miracle is that when the Lord comes to his planting, he comes looking for fruit. The nation of Israel didn't bear the fruit the Lord wanted. Oftentimes in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today, many Christians who are a part of the Lord's church, who have been planted in the garden of the Lord, do not produce the fruits that God expects. And this leads to great confusion amongst the flock. But this can also lead to a great uh, distress in the lives of God's people. Because as we're going to see in this passage, one of the chief grounds of our assurance... The chief proof that you have actually been planted in the Lord, that you are joined to the vine of Christ, is that you bear fruit. It's that you are a fruitful branch. And what we're going to see in this passage is that true Christians, those who have been united to Christ in truth, they are so wrought upon by the Holy Spirit in the outward means of grace that they produce the spiritual fruit of a faith which works by love unto the full assurance of hope. I'll say that again. True Christians are so wrought upon by the Holy Spirit in the outward means of grace that they produce the spiritual fruit of a faith which works by love unto the full assurance of hope. That's what this passage is going to teach us, and it does it with two parts. Verses 4 through 8, false Christians outwardly wrought upon. Verses 4 through 8, false Christians outwardly wrought upon. And then verses 9 through 12, true Christians inwardly wrought upon. 
verses 4 through 8, false Christians outwardly wrought upon. Verses 9 through 12, true Christians inwardly wrought upon. As we begin looking at this passage, we we need to keep this in mind. I I trust that for some of you, you, you recognize that this passage is a very difficult passage, but it's also a very controversial passage. This passage is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to understand correctly. And there's really two ways that most understand this passage. The first is that some take this passage to be teaching that Christians who have been regenerated People who have truly experienced the new birth that Christ spoke about in John chapter 3. These people who have really been regenerated can fall away from grace. Some teach that passage this way. They think that's what's going on here. That a true Christian, truly united to Christ, can fall away from their salvation. The other side, which is the side that I adopt, I think it's the biblical interpretation, is that those who do fall away from Christ were never truly regenerated. Those that end up walking away from the gospel, those that end up denying the truths of Scripture, even though they may have been in the church, even though, as we're going to see, they have been outwardly affected by the power of the Holy Spirit, were never truly regenerated inwardly. There's a couple of reasons for this. First, uh, the reason I'm interpreting this passage this way, the first has to do with the broad testimony of Scripture. Whenever you look at any one passage in Scripture, you have to keep in mind what the general message of Scripture is. And brothers and sisters, the general message about your salvation, about the salvation that Christ gives you, is that it is from beginning to end a work of God. It is God's almighty power and grace that elected you, that joined you to Christ, and that seals you in the Holy Spirit, and that preserves you for all eternity. It is God's work. And the great thing about God is that He never fails in His work. His work never fails. We learn this in passages like Philippians 1, verse 6. There, Paul is writing to the church and he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn this truth also in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, where Christ speaks about he and his father's role in preserving his sheep. Christ says, I save my sheep and no one plucks them out of my hand. My father is greater than I and nobody plucks them out of my father's hand. And so what he's saying is that two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, have their hands around God's sheep. And nobody can take them out of God's hands. And so for that reason, when we look at this passage, we have to say, whatever's being described in verses 4 through 8, it's describing people who were never really regenerated. It's describing people who were never really united to Christ. This passage gives us a description, as I said, 
not of those who have been truly regenerated, but of those who have been outwardly affected by the gospel ministry. Those who have had some outward effect produced in their lives by the ministry of the gospel. This really is the source of the controversy. The the source of the difficulty of interpreting this passage is how do we understand outward effect versus inward effect. Now there's there's another prefatory mark that we need here, a prefatory remark. In order for us to truly understand this passage, and in understanding it, to truly profit from what the author is telling us. When the scriptures speak of the outward man and the inward man, they are not talking about the body and the mind. Mankind, as God made him, is both a body and a soul together, both before he fell and after he fell. So mankind in all stages of his relationship to God, whether in the state of innocence, the state of falling into sin, or the state of regeneration, or the state of glory, man is body and soul together. Many have misunderstood the scriptures when it speaks of outward versus inward. They think outward only refers to the outer body, And inward refers to the inner mind and soul of man. That's not what's being talked about here. What is actually being talked about, outward versus inward, outward refers to the flesh. Inward refers to the heart. Turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, Paul gives a description of this in his own experience. The flesh, as Paul uses the term here in Romans chapter 7, specifically verses 14 through 25, the flesh is man's sinful nature, body and soul. The flesh is man's sinful nature, body and soul, mind, will, and affections, and the physical body. All of that is included in the idea of the flesh. The heart that Paul speaks about in this chapter is that inner seed of the personality, that uh, seat of everything that makes you who you are is a hidden and in many ways a subconscious location in your individuality. The heart is the essence of who you are. And so Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If I then do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Notice, he makes a distinction between his flesh and himself. The flesh is the outward man, body and soul. The I that Paul is referring to is the regenerate heart that wants to do the will of God. 
Nothing good in me, in my flesh, dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I do not find. Skipping down uh, to verse 22. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, that heart, that seat of the personality. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, the flesh, the body and the soul, the outward man, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So when we speak of outward versus inward, we are not speaking about the body versus the mind. We're speaking about the flesh versus the heart. Now we're ready to look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 with one final comment. I apologize. I said we're ready for Hebrews 6. There's one last thing to be said. Because regeneration, the new birth, occurs in the heart of man, it occurs somewhere that you and I cannot see. You and I cannot perceive the depth of our own heart. Only God can see that place. And only God can change the heart immediately by the power of the Spirit. But you and I cannot see the change itself. All we can see are the fruits. All we can see are the effects of that change. Repentance and faith is the primary effect of that change. When God changes your heart, you hear the gospel, you repent and believe. That is a fruit of regeneration. Several passages speak about this. Romans 6, 17. James 2, 18. Speak about the fruit that comes out of a transformed heart. And so as we look back at Hebrews chapter 6, we have to keep in mind that this passage is describing the outward effects of the gospel ministry upon the heart of the unregenerate. These are all outward effects upon the hearts of those that are unregenerate. The outward benefit, if we could summarize verses 4 through 5, the, the primary outward benefit that the author is highlighting here is that they have experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit. They have experienced the truth of Pentecost. They know in their body and in their soul the Holy Spirit is real. And God has poured out the Holy Spirit to dwell among men. They have experienced this outwardly. Notice how these people are described. It says that they are enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have partaken of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Notice first off, being a partaker of the Holy Spirit, it's in the middle of our list. There's two before and two after. And then the Holy Spirit is named explicitly right in the middle. This is highlighting being a partaker of the Holy Spirit as the primary emphasis of this list. But notice also the other things that are described here. They refer to the work of the Holy Spirit. He says on the one hand, they have become enlightened. 
Enlightenment means to gain new knowledge. It means to understand the truth at a certain level. To gain enlightenment comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, it says that they've become, uh, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. If you look throughout the whole New Testament, you'll find that the one gift of the New Testament, the chief gift, the perfect gift that the Father gives to the children that ask Him, is the Holy Spirit. The heavenly gift is the Holy Spirit. And it says that they have tasted of this heavenly gift. Now, to taste something means to sample it. It means to simply experience it and see what it's like. Some of you may have seen the picture. When my watermelon plant was growing, one of my children was a little too eager to taste the fruit of the watermelon gift. And so he picked a watermelon that was no bigger than my fist and took a bite out of it. He tasted it. Didn't taste very good. But keep in mind, the idea of tasting doesn't mean that you've swallowed, digested, and benefited from it. It simply means you've sampled it. You've experienced it. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They have tasted the good word of God. They've experienced the power of the word. Peter will say in his first letter that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is preached by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. When the word of God comes to people in power and the Holy Spirit is blessing the Word of God, people taste and see that God really exists. Just as one illustration of this, turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is describing worship in the church. And he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he says, the chief spiritual gift you should seek for is to preach or to prophesy. He says in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 14, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever, notice it's an unbeliever, or uninformed person comes in, he is convicted of all, he is convinced by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. They have tasted the good word of God. And then finally, they have tasted the powers of the age to come. The powers of the age to come refers to both the extraordinary powers, gifts of healing, gifts of prophecy, gifts of knowledge, but also the ordinary powers of the age to come, specifically preaching and teaching. Paul gives this list in Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to look there, the extraordinary powers of the Christian church are the things that Corinth was dealing with, prophecy, tongue speaking. The ordinary powers of the age to come are the gifts of the Spirit that operate throughout all ages of the church, in particular preaching and teaching. And so these have experienced all these things. These have experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that this is only outward because he'll say later on in verse 9, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. So we have to read verses 4 and 5 as things that do not accompany salvation. Someone can know the truth of the gospel. 
Someone can even have felt the power of the truth of the gospel in their own conscience. Someone may even be able to recognize that in the church of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit is present. God is among you of the truth. They may even say at one level, the word of God is good, and I have experienced the power of the preaching of the word. All of those things can be true of you. And yet you can remain unsaved. This is part of what makes this passage so difficult because we read these descriptions and we think, surely this person is regenerate. Surely this is somebody who really knows Christ. No. Because you see, this description is a description of Judas Iscariot. Judas was enlightened with the truth of the gospel. Judas experienced the powers of the age to come. He partook of the heavenly gift. He tasted the good word of God. He was a partaker of the Holy Spirit. He was one of the apostolic twelve. And yet he betrayed Christ unto his crucifixion. That's why the author moves on in the next two verses to say, if these people fall away who have experienced all of these things, they crucify for themselves Christ again. It's a hard pill to swallow to read these descriptions and also recognize that these descriptions do not describe salvation. These are not the fruits of regeneration. These are the ordinary outward effects of the gospel ministry. This is what God ordinarily does outwardly through the preaching of the word upon the souls of everyone that hears the gospel but it does not equal salvation. Notice how evil this is. To outwardly experience these benefits of the gospel and to reject the gospel. Notice how he describes it. If they fall away, it's, um, the, uh, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew again to repentance these that fall away since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. What the author is describing for us here is the same sin that Christ described in the Gospels. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Christ says you can blaspheme the Father and and He will forgive you. You can even blaspheme the Son of God and you'll be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what's described here. It has to be someone who has experienced the power of the Spirit, who confesses in their heart the Holy Spirit is real, that the Holy Spirit is good, that the Holy Spirit is gracious, and that the Holy Spirit will save me. But I don't want it. I reject it. I have tasted the powers of the age to come And I would rather side with Babylon than with Jerusalem. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. That's what's being described here. Notice also that to fall away from the gospel is worthy of hellfire. You know, in in our age of, of easy, nice, getting along with everybody, we often don't take these religious warnings seriously. Verses 7 and 8, the author says that if the rain falls and the ground bears thorns and and briars, it's rejected near to being cursed, whose end 
is to be burned. Christ said in John 15, the branches in him that do not bear fruit are cut off by the Father and thrown into the fire. Falling away from the gospel is a great wickedness, so wicked in fact, it's worthy of hellfire. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's not a preference. It's life or death. It's the honor of God or the shame of the Son of God by crucifying Him again by rejecting the work of the Spirit. Well, the author gives this warning to us. He describes those who are only outwardly wrought upon by the Holy Spirit. But then he moves to describe those who are inwardly wrought upon by the Holy Spirit. That's what we turn to in verses 9 through 12. I want you to notice that in the midst of this warning, he reassures his audience. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation. Notice the way that he reassures them It's not primarily because he's trying to make them feel good about themselves. What he's saying is that what I see in you are the things that are worthy of reassurance. He's giving them reassurance because he says, I can see in you the fruit of union with Christ, the things that accompany salvation. The things, as I mentioned before, described above, do not accompany salvation. Now, we have to pause and ask all of ourselves a question here because what the author has described in verses 4 and 5 is characteristic of most Christianity today. Revivalism, charismatic Christianity, contemporary Christianity. Most of what happens in the worship services of most American churches is a carnal attempt to produce emotional responses to produce a feeling that the Holy Spirit is present with me to produce this sensation that God has been in our midst but notice what the author says that by itself is not salvation that by itself doesn't mean you're regenerate it means at best God came near to you and you were not changed At worst, it means you had an emotional response to a skillful band and an elaborate light show. But none of those things characterize true Christians. None of those things are signs of regeneration. Here then is the source, brothers and sisters, of the weakness, the impotency, and the irrelevance of the American church today. Because for the most part, the American church is doing nothing except what Hollywood does with a much bigger budget and a much more skillful execution. We have to return to true Christianity. We have to return to the Lord's vineyard and produce the fruits that the Lord is pleased with. How do you assess yourself in this description? Where do you stand? Are you like my green pepper plant? Producing fruit that I don't even know what to do with? There's so much of it. Or are you like the watermelon? Taking up space 
producing no fruit, and sucking the nutrients out of the soil. Paul tells us that we have to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourselves. Do you not know yourselves? Do you not know if Christ is in you? So we all have to examine ourselves. That's why these lists are given to us. Well, he not only gives us the list of a false Christian, he now gives us a description of the true Christian. He gives us the grounds of assurance. The actual fruits to look for to assure ourselves, God truly is my God. Christ truly is my vine and I am one of his fruitful branches. And he gives this description here in verses 10 through 12. What you're going to see in this passage are the foundations of assurance. Assurance is a precious thing, brothers and sisters. Assurance is the confidence that God gives us through the work of Christ that He is our God and He is our Father. He hears our prayers. He accepts our lives. He accepts our works. And one day we shall be with Him in glory. Assurance is one of the greatest benefits of the gospel. And now he's going to give us the grounds of a true Christian assurance. This framework, if you want to look at it more on your own time, is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, paragraph 2. It's a very good chapter to look at this afternoon. Westminster, uh, uh, chapter 18, paragraph 2, lists three things as the ground of Christian assurance. And the first is the integrity of God. Notice what the author says in verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget. We find here the integrity of God is at stake. Your assurance that you are in a state of grace depends upon the truthfulness of God's promises. Notice he says God is not unjust to forget. He doesn't say God is merciful. He doesn't say God is gracious. He doesn't say God is loving. He says God is not unjust to forget your labor of love, etc., etc. This is based upon the promises of God. And the, the promise of God, brothers and sisters, is that the righteous will inherit glory. The promise of God is that those who are righteous will be with God forever in eternity. Those who are righteous will enjoy eternal life. This righteousness is imputed in your justification by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He declares you to be righteous for the work of Christ. But this righteousness is also worked out in your sanctification. Justification and sanctification both make you righteous. Justification legally and uh, what they call forensically. In the eyes of the court, you are righteous through justification. Sanctification makes you righteous personally through a growth in holiness. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 9. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. 
this is, brothers and sisters, I, I know that we are, we're, we're digging up some deep dirt here. But you have to understand, there are so few pulpits that will teach you these things. And yet they are so essential to the truth of the gospel and your assurance as a Christian. Look at what Paul says in Romans 2, verses 6 through 9. He talks about the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds, including Christians. God will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. God will judge each and every one of you based upon your deeds. The Lord Jesus Christ is given to you to empower you to produce good deeds. Because you see, God's judgment doesn't change. He judges everyone according to the works that they produce. Christ is given to enable you to produce those good works that will be acceptable in God's sight. Several passages, we won't turn there, but there's a lot of passages for you to consider. Job 34.11 Psalm 62.12, Proverbs 24.12, Jeremiah 17.10. All of these passages speak about God rewarding people based on their deeds. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 through 11. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what was done in the body, whether for good unto glory or evil unto condemnation. But then he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... The terror of his righteous judgment which does not favor persons. We persuade men. Be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of this judgment and in light of the promise, God will reward the righteous. Be righteous in Christ. Join with him, believe in him, grow and produce the fruits that Christ produces. God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. And so the integrity of God is the foundation of our assurance. The other one is the presence in our lives of the graces to which those promises are made. Consider Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. The Lord says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. There is no place that you can build that will be a sufficient dwelling for me. Yet, I will look upon the one who is of a humble and contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Do you want God to look upon you with favor? Do you want the maker of heaven and earth to smile upon you? Then be humble and tremble at his word. You see how this works? Certain graces have promises made to them. Likewise, in this passage... The promise of salvation is made to those who produce true good works. And he describes a true good work in our next few verses. God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. 
which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Time will fail us to go into more detail about the nature of good works here, but notice what he describes. He says, God is not unjust to forget the fruits of righteousness that you have produced, laboring in love for the glory of the Father, for the benefit of your brothers and sisters. That is the fruit of a true Christian heart. That is what regeneration produces. It produces love and good works done only for the glory of God to the benefit of our neighbor. Titus, the whole book of Titus speaks about this. This passage is speaking about this. And brothers and sisters, I want you to walk away with this. This is the thing that accompanies salvation. A transformed life. If the Holy Spirit has truly wrought upon your heart, your life will be transformed. One of the first transformations is repentance and faith. You begin to believe in Christ and not yourself. The, the other transformations that come after that are a growth in grace and all of the virtues of Christianity. Peter says in his second letter, Be diligent to make your calling and election sure by adding unto faith knowledge, and to knowledge brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love, etc., etc., etc. This is the fruit of a true Christian heart. And this is also one of the sources of our assurance. Let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. Do you, you ever walk through the valley? Every Christian has. Maybe you're in the valley right now. If you've never been in the valley, you will. And when we go through those valleys, we begin to ask ourselves the questions. Is God really for me? Do I know Him? I thought I knew Him. But maybe I don't. I don't feel the, 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 the sense of peace that I once felt. I don't feel like God is favorable towards me. I feel like my, my prayers bounce off the rafters and come right back in my lap. Where do you go to find assurance? You go to the same place you looked for salvation. You go to the promises of God and the graces that those promises are made to. As you walk through the valley and look at your life, you should be able to say, I once was this, but now I'm this. As Paul the Apostle says, I once was a blasphemer, now I'm an apostle. I once was a drunk, but now I'm sober. I once was angry, but now I'm patient. I once was filthy in my lusts, but now I'm pure and chaste. You should be able to see some type of transformation in your life. Because God's work never fails. God's true plantings always produce their fruit. And when you see that fruit, that's a source of joy and of assurance and confidence. While the integrity of God, the presence of the graces to which His promises are made, and finally, the testimony of the Holy Spirit is our final ground of assurance. You see... Ultimately, we can reason and think about these things, but until God himself comes and says, you are mine, our heart will always float around in doubts. And so the testimony of the Spirit is one of the final ways that God assures us we are his. The Holy Spirit does this in three ways, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. 
He does it here in this passage through the word. Notice in verse 9 how he addresses the people. But beloved. But beloved. We are convinced of better things concerning you. That is the testimony of the Spirit to all those that belong to Christ. That even though he's giving you a warning to not love the world or the things of the world, even though the Father has had to raise his voice, he reassures you, beloved, even though we speak this way, you're still one of God's beloved. And so the Holy Spirit gives his testimony through the word. He also gives his testimony through the sacraments. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul the Apostle says that the Holy Spirit is sent to seal you in the faith of Christ. Romans chapter 4, Paul describes the circumcision of Abraham as a seal of the righteousness which he had by faith. Sacraments are seals. The Holy Spirit's job is to seal. Sacraments are seals. The Holy Spirit seals you through the sacrament. He uses the sacrament to increase your assurance. And then, of course, finally, the Holy Spirit does this through prayer. Romans chapter 8. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The word sacraments and prayer. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes and speaks about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But notice how the Holy Spirit does this. He does it through the means of prayer. Every true prayer is the heart, by the power of the Spirit, crying out to God, Abba, Father, save me. And as you pray under the power of the Spirit, He reassures you that you are one of God's children. And so, these are the grounds of our assurance. Do you have assurance? Are you growing in your assurance? Let me encourage you just as the author is going to encourage us, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence unto the full assurance of hope. Brothers and sisters, we live in a hopeless day. There is no hope in princes. There is no hope in governments. There is no hope in the economy. There is no hope in academia. There is no hope except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Except for what He has done and what He has promised to His people. Salvation and glory forever. And so the desire of the author of Hebrews, my desire and the desire of all your elders here today, is that all of you would show the same diligence unto the full assurance of faith. And that you not become sluggish but that you imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. This word sluggish is a very interesting word. It's the same word that he used in chapter 5, verse 11. Remember? Chapter 5, verse 11. We have many things to say to you about the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're hard to say because you 
have become sluggish in hearing. Same Greek word. Sluggishness in the means of grace produces sluggishness in your Christian life. And so when he says we want all of you to show the same diligence, he means first, be diligent in the means of grace. Pay attention to the means of grace. Use the means of grace. And love your neighbor. Serve your neighbor to the glory of God. Do things that benefit others. Be diligent in producing good works. Be diligent and grow and increase in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Peter says in his second letter, you will not be unfruitful. And so an entrance will be supplied to you into the eternal kingdom. If you produce the fruits that God intends when he planted you in his garden. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the promises that you've made in your word. We thank you that you are the all-righteous and all-knowing, all-wise God. And we confess and acknowledge that your promise is that it is the righteous who will dwell in your presence. And the righteous who will be saved. That it is the righteous who fall down seven times, but the Lord picks them up. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ we have a perfect righteousness, both imputed to us in justification, but also worked out in us through sanctification. We pray, O Lord, that you indeed would work upon our hearts inwardly transforming and growing us into fruitful branches of your vine that we may not be like those who are only outwardly wrought upon who produce no fruit and who though they drink up the rain from heaven only produce thorns and briars and are worthy of being cursed and burned we pray O Lord that you would spare us from this fate by working upon our hearts in the means of grace and we ask this all for Jesus sake Amen.